So I'll read John 17, verses 1 through 20. So let's read God's word. John 17, verse 1. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven, and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you, as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. For I have given to them the words which you have given me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours, and all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father. Keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me I have kept, and none of them is lost, except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me and into the world, I also sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. This is the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you. This is your word, and we know it is precious to us. We thank you, Father. Your word is truth, and we ask you to open our minds to understand this truth. We ask you now in Christ's name and for his sake. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let me recap briefly where we are. This is the third message in a set of five planned to cover the five points of Calvinism. The first message two weeks ago was entitled, Slaved, uh, Enslaved by Satan. And there our text was 2 Timothy 2, and we saw that man is enslaved to do Satan's will. Fallen man is unable to respond to the gospel call. God, however, has Satan on a leash, and Job 1 clearly shows us that. Satan is a tool in the hand of God. So God commands Satan to release his elect when he so wants them released so that they may accept the gospel call. The second message was chosen by the Father, chosen by Father. 
And we saw from Romans 9 that it is God's will that prevails on the earth and not man's. After stating that Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated, Paul then asks this rhetorical hypothetical question in verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Paul's answer is certainly not. And then he cites God telling Moses that he will have mercy on whom he will have mercy, and he will harden, harden into sin, those whom he chooses to harden in their sin. And he goes on for several verses to that end, and then he asks his second rhetorical question. You will say to me then, why does God still find fault? In other words, if God does what he wants, how can he criticize people for unbelief, for who has resisted his will, his sovereign will? And what does Paul say? Does Paul take that opportunity to agree with his accuser that it is man's free will, not God's sovereign will that will prevail on the earth? No. What Paul says is this. Who are you to reply against God? So he doesn't even dignify their question with an answer. He just affirms that God is sovereign and God does what he wants and that it is our role as his children to serve him, as his creation to serve him. Paul then goes on, after answering that rhetorical question with, by saying uh, he does what he wants, he then says this, who are you to reply against God? He says uh, that the potter has the power over the clay. This is a direct lift from Jeremiah 18. But yet I think many Arminians don't even go there. They just see it in the New Testament and they hate it. This is despised. And I read to you uh, one commentator that said that this was the worst illustration that Paul ever used in the Bible because he didn't agree with it. He didn't feel that Paul was uh, appropriate in using it. These two questions and answers proved that men do not self-select themselves into the elect of God, thus requiring God to post-destine them as opposed to predestine them to faith. It is God whose will prevails. So that brings us to today. You thought last week was controversial on unconditional election. It is. I would say it's the second most controversial point, but today is by far the most controversial of the five points in the five points of Calvinism. Arminians are very heated in their opposition to this. They are offended, they believe, on Christ's behalf that we are unfairly limiting Christ's sacrifice. Even people who call themselves Calvinists will often refer to themselves as four-point Calvinists because they do not accept limited atonement. And really, though, a one-point uh, Arminian in this case is an Arminian that has marshaled all of their forces to defend Arminianism against Calvinism. They're really not Calvinists. They're Arminians. So what do we believe about limited atonement? We'll discuss that. Today is structured in three points, fairly broad. The first one I'll labor at length. And we will cite Christ's own words. Who better to quote 
concerning whom Christ died for than Jesus himself. He will tell us exactly. He will be very specific in who he died for. Then we'll read Jesus' words and John's words explaining why Jesus died, for what he died, not for whom, but for what. That is very general. This is a generalization of Christ's death. It's not specifically for whom he died, but why and for what. Then we'll speak about what Christ's death accomplished, and we'll talk about it from both perspectives of the Arminian and the Calvinist. So first, Christ explaining for whom he died, and unlike last week where I, get, I got to Romans 9 eventually, here I'll start with John 17. So we'll be here for a while. I'll cover two primary points. It's from verses 1 through 8 and from verses 9 through 20. Verses 1 through 8, let me preface this whole section with a question. What did Jesus accomplish? Now, it's interesting, this high priestly prayer, because Jesus is speaking of what he is about to do in the final day of his life as if it's in the past, as if it's already done. But we know that Scripture often does this. This is the opportunity where Jesus has to pray to his Father in the presence of his 11 believing apostles. And he is conveying to them through his prayer exactly, exactly what he was doing. Let me reread the first few verses. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you, as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. It is this finished work that Jesus is referring to, what he is about to do. I want to focus first on what he said in verse 2. You have given him authority over all flesh. Jesus is speaking of himself in the third person here. He's in a prayer to God and he's referring to himself as the son. And so he doesn't refer to himself as I, he's referring to himself in the third person. So what is he saying when he's saying that he, as Jesus, has authority over all flesh? I want to give you three examples in which God exercised authority over the flesh in the Old Testament. They're from the lives of Job, Jeremiah, and Nebuchadnezzar. Job chapter 1, verse 12, And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power, only do not lay a hand on his person. It was God himself that brought Job to Satan's attention. God himself brought this up. He brought this upon Job. Why? Because he wanted to. He brought it up with Satan, who appeared also with the sons of men before his court. Satan comes to God when called, and he departs when sent away. Satan answers to God, and he only does what God allows him to do. God allowed Satan access to Job, killed his whole family, destroyed all of his property. He exercised control over this man in so many ways. And we pray to God that nothing like this would ever happen to us, right? But yet it's God's ultimate sovereignty that allowed this. We so want to live in a world, many people do, where evil cannot be controlled by God. But you don't know what you're asking for if that's what you seek. 
you want to control, where evil is utterly and completely controlled by our Father in heaven. And he does. That's the world we live in. Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 5 reads, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. You were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you a prophet to the nations. Jeremiah did not prove, uh, choose this of his own free will. He was made a prophet of the Lord from the womb. We could cite many examples of this from the Old Testament. God does his will on the earth in the lives of people. Daniel 4.35, this is Nebuchadnezzar writing a letter. God does according to his will among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? Nebuchadnezzar, this ancient pagan king, had greater respect for our God's sovereignty than most of us do, than most modern Christians do. Now, he was eating grass for years. I would think that if we had been put in that position, we might have a greater respect for God's sovereignty as well. And so cut ourselves some slack. But still, we modern Christians don't learn the examples that God has given us clearly in the Old Testament as to who runs things around here. In Job's life, when God points out Job to Satan, and then he allows Satan to destroy his family, to steal his property, and then to have him wish he were dead because he's so miserable with his boils. If God gives Satan control over believers to that degree, how much more control would God allow Satan to exercise over those that hate God? It's total. We talked about that two weeks ago. Unbelievers are enslaved to do Satan's will. Yet, Satan can only do and allow them to do what God allows. They cannot go beyond the bounds that God has set for them. So, it is this authority that we see exercised in the Old Testament that Jesus exercised on earth as God in the flesh on earth. He had all authority over all flesh. And this authority extended to their souls. In verse 2, as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. So see, it's everything. It's not just their bodies. It's their souls. Christ had all authority over every human on earth, both body and soul. Verse 3, why did Jesus have this authority? What was his purpose? As you have given him the authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So see, he gave eternal life. He gave the knowledge of himself and his Father to those that he bestowed eternal life upon. That's what he gave to them. What did he give to them? Knowledge. This knowledge is an intimate knowledge. This knowledge is an... You know, before I became a Christian, I inferred that there was a God. But I did not know that God until he revealed himself to me. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying he did with these men with whom he's praying. He revealed himself and his God to them, his Father to them. Eternal life 
was given to them through this revelation, this self-revelation. Down in verse 6 we read, I have manifested, now that's what you read in the New King James, but that word is revealed. I have revealed your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. They were God the Father's before Christ even came to earth, before they knew Christ, before they had faith. They were God the Father's. Verse 8, I have given to them the words which you have given me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. We're talking about saving faith here. I have given them the words, they've received them, and they now know. So Jesus was successful because his uh, disciples demonstrated belief in him and his father. Belief was a result of Christ's work in their hearts. It did not precede his work in their hearts. It was the result of his work in their hearts because Jesus revealed himself and his father to them. God's revelation of himself is the heart of faith. If God did not reveal himself, they would not know him. Now we'll go on to the second part of the high priestly prayer beginning at verse 9. And here I want to preface this with a question, a different question. For whom did Jesus pray in this high priestly prayer? Verse 9, I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. If Jesus is on the cusp of giving his life for the world, for every man on earth, why would he not pray for them? Which is greater, to give your life for someone or to intercede to God the Father on their behalf? He refused to pray for them. I do not pray for them, he said. Who I'm praying for are these believers that you've given me that I've revealed myself and you to them, they now have faith, them I pray for. I do not pray for the world. Verse 12, while I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I kept, and none of them is lost except the son of permission, perdition that the scripture might be fulfilled. These people were the fathers to give it to Christ. They were the sons to keep hold of. Iscariot was the son of perdition that was to betray Christ, that was serving that purpose, that was his destiny for which he had been created. Jesus refers to these people as the Father's possession and as his own possession. Verse 14, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Jesus separated these people from the world such that now they are no longer considered a part of it. Obviously, this is the unbelieving world Jesus is referring to, and he has pulled these people from it. And he refuses to pray for these people that do not believe. Last week, I mentioned to you during the uh, uh, topic on uh, uh, chosen uh, by the Father, that let's give uh, Christ a pass when it comes to the apostles. Let's grant him a mulligan. 
Uh, he had to override at least a few people's wills in order to accomplish his purposes. So let's say, okay, the 12 men that he chose, those are people's uh, wills who he overrode. And let's not bother with it. And let me say it again at this point. We know that's not true, but let's just say it again. There is more in this high priestly prayer, though, and you must hear this. This is very important. That's why I went up through verse 20. Jesus said, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Who will believe. They don't believe now. So they're still in the world, which he had refused to pray for earlier, but now he's praying for them. He's praying not only for these whom he's with that are believers, but he's praying for all who will come to faith. And listen to how he phrases it. As you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Where did this word go that the apostles preached to people? It went into here. This is the word we're talking about, God's word. They wrote the Bible under God's authority, inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so I believe verse 20 includes us. Jesus prayed for us who came to faith 2,000 years after he spoke this prayer. But he did not pray for any of the unbelieving. None of them were included in that prayer. Only, only the elect, only the elect that he was with and those that would come to future faith. This is what the text clearly says. Now, let's see what, where else Jesus refers to himself in the Gospels for why exactly he was dying and for whom. Matthew 20, verse 28. The Son of Man came to give his life a ransom for many. Now, we know the word ransom from TV shows, hopefully for the most part. I hope none of you have had a loved one kidnapped and held for ransom. But we've all seen it on innumerable TV shows. So we know ransom is what is paid to a kidnapper to free the person that you love. That's exactly what Jesus did. He paid the price necessary to redeem those that he loved. He purchased them back as slaves were purchased in his day. Because this term ransom was not exclusively used as it is in our day to buy back kidnapped victims. It was used to buy back slaves. Now, some of these slaves probably were kidnapped into slavery, but not all of them. Some of them were born into it. Another phrase for this ransom is in the place of or in exchange for. Again, there is one word in the New Testament that's used only a few times, but it is propitiation. This is to make the exchange. Jesus offers himself up in place of. So Jesus paid the price, but what was the price? He exchanged himself for that person. So if Jesus paid the debt of all, the ransom for all, as Arminians say, why on earth do we read this in the Bible? The Son of Man came to give his life a ransom for all? No. The Son of Man came to give his life a ransom for many, not all. 
If Jesus had died for every human being, as the Armenians say, why does that not say all? Why does it merely say many? All and many are not the same word. They're very different words, aren't they? This same text, the same thing, the word many appears six chapters later in this very same verse, 26, 28. Jesus speaking, this is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many, not for all, which is shed for many. Why would Jesus not just say he died for all? Because many limits his death. Jesus himself limited his death. And yet we Calvinists are accused of unfairly limiting Christ's death and making it somehow unfair for the world. When in reality, it's Jesus himself who used these terms. Let's turn to John 10, if you want to follow with me. John 10, and I'll start reading at verse 11. I'll read five verses from John 10, verses 11 through 15. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But a hireling, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he is, not, because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd and I know my sheep and I am known by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. So in this story, we have sheep and then we have this wolf that's coming after them. They're all humans. These wolves are not demons. These wolves are not Satan. This wolf is another human. Wolves are coming after the sheep. And Jesus said what? He referred to the sheep as my sheep. I lay down my life for my sheep. He gives his life for his own, for those whom he's, lo he's loving, for no one else. The next verse says this, And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. What is this other flock? Jehovah's Witnesses think they know. They talk about the big flock and the little flock. This, these are the Gentiles. These are the people that a few years after Christ's death will come flooding into the Christian church. The apostles don't understand this at this point. They're, they're caught flat-footed during this. We know the story of Peter and the sheep being let down and go kill and eat. Paul being sent across to Europe, over to the call of Macedonia, over to this uh, warrior out in the Gentile world. God has expanded now his salvation from this small nation in the Middle East to the entire world. I'm going to skip down 10 verses and read starting at verse 25. John 10, starting at verse 25, Jesus answered them, I told you, now the, the, he's speaking to the Jewish leaders, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But you do not believe, because you are not of my sheep, as I said to you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Why did these Jews not believe Jesus? We do not have to guess at this. 
We do not have to ascribe their unbelief to the inscrutability of man's free will. The text clearly tells us why they did not believe. Jesus tells them, you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. You cannot turn this sentence around as Arminians would naturally do. You cannot say they weren't his sheep because they didn't believe. Jesus didn't say that. He said, you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. You know who they were? They were the wolves. They were the very wolves that he'd been condemning earlier. John 15, 13 reads, Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. Jesus did not lay down his life for his enemies. He laid down his life for his friends. It's true that at the time he died, some would be his enemies. Paul was his avowed enemy. But on the cross, Jesus laid down his life for Paul. He prayed for Paul in the high priestly prayer. Yet, that was looking forward to the time when he would be his friend, when he would be reconciled to him, because he would have revealed himself through the Holy Spirit, would have revealed God the Father and God the Son to Paul at that point, bringing him into the fold, drawing him from the lost and drawing him into the flock with his sheep. In verse 26, later in John 15, I mentioned this last week, but Jesus says, you did not choose me, I chose you. Now that was the first point. Those were Christ's words explaining for whom he died, precisely for whom he died. He never said, I am dying for every man on earth. Jesus never said that. So the second point is explaining why or for what Jesus died in a much more general sense, not precisely for whom he died, but why he died. And I'll read three sections here, starting at John 6, verse 50. 650 reads, This is the bread, he's speaking of himself, this is Jesus speaking, this is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. And then, of course, the most famous verse in all the Bible, John 3:16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And then 1 John 2.12, a verse that many Arminians will go to as the verse that proves this is for whom Jesus died. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Now what I'm telling you is that these do not say for whom Jesus died. They say why he died and for what he died. References to world here do not mean every person, but all peoples. And it is often very difficult to tell precisely what definition of world is in place. Even amongst Calvinists, they might argue, this one means that, that one means this, and I'll, we'll cover that in a little more detail. But Jesus died for the Gentiles as well as the Jews. This means that he died for all the world, not just the Israelites. This was... Tremendous news. It was earth-shattering. It changed the world. 
until this time, until Christ's death, until the expansion of the gospel to all the world, anybody that wanted to truly know God, to know our God, would have to become a Jew. They would have to somehow find them, their way into Judaism. And where in the world were they? Well, wherever they were, they needed to find a Jew because this nation is so tiny, right here at the eastern end of the Mediterranean Sea. But Christ opened it up to all the world, all the earth. Piper says it this way, and I think this has been around for a while. Jesus died for all without distinction, not for all without exception. The distinction being ethnic races. Let's look into this world word. This word is very popular in the New Testament. It occurs lots of times. I think it's nearly 200 times. But there are many definitions. I'll give you five, and within several of them, there are nuances of different meanings. First is the earth, the physical earth. Now, that can refer just to the physical earth, or it could be used to include our sun and stars or the planets and everything. Also, it can be used to refer to the earth as a physical material thing, whereas heaven is an immaterial thing. It can be used in that form of contrast. But again, these are subtle distinctions between use of this word. The second main one would be humans. What many people say the word world means, and often it does. But again, it can be humans without exception, all humans, or it can be humans without distinction, all types of humans, all races of humans. This is metonymy. It's when we refer to the president by the term White House. The White House said this, the White House said that. We know the House doesn't talk. It's the man in the House that is referred to as the White House. The same way the world can be referred to, and it just means people, humans. Now third, it can mean fallen creation, only the fallen world, alienated from God. And here, it could mean the fallen world involving all flesh, all things, because we know the nature was punished as well as man in the fall. Or it could just be referring to people alone. Fallen creation, though, tends to refer to everything, everybody, every, uh, everything that has been affected by the fall, alienated from God. The fourth would be goods, material possessions. And the fifth would be a adjective, meaning vast or of great magnitude or variety. Let me give you an example of each. So first, earth. Written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. That would typically be perceived as the uh, world that God has made. And so it's referring to this physical creation. And the second one, humans. Look, the world has gone after him. Now, this is interesting because, see, this word world here could be an exaggeration of uh, the humans without distinction. The, the Pharisees and Sadducees could have been saying, look, everybody is going out to him. Or it could have actually been referring to a magnitude or variety, but exclusively about people. Because later, when we give the fifth definition, magnitude or variety, this is from James, you'll recognize this, tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. James is using the term world to describe the vastness or the magnitude or the variety of sin that the tongue produces. That could be what the Pharisees mean when they say, look, the world has gone after him. They're speaking of people, but they're speaking of this vast multitude. Not necessarily even humans without exception or humans without distinction. It's kind of humans just in a vast number. 
Fourth would, uh, third, fallen creation, you shine as lights in the world. And actually, this aspect, using the word world to describe fallen creation and separating the believers out of it is, I believe, very common in John. I read to you 20 verses, and there were 15 occurrences of the word world. You might not have caught all those, but there were a lot of occurrences of that word. The vast majority of them were referring to the world as apart from the believers. That fallen aspect of the world, humanity, and probably all that goes with it. Uh, material possessions, uh, he who gains the whole world and loses his own soul, what good is it? That is uh, the world seen as just the uh, summation of all of its uh, goods and wealth. And then the vast, tongue is a fire, world of iniquity. So I've given you five different, very different meanings of that word world. And within several of them, there are nuances of difference. It's really hard. I looked for a definitive reference. But what you'll find, though, is that all of the, them are colored by what you want them to say. Isn't context wonderful? We can just make it what we want it to be when we have a rubber word, such as world, that occurs all over the place, and it has so many definitions. Let me give you the two from our text, the first two. There are, like I said, there are 15, but let me just give you the first two. Verse 5, And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. And here we could be referring to all of creation. The next verse, I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. So this is that fallen world that is a very common way of understanding this word. Context dictates the meaning. Earlier we were singing, Who Follows in His Train. Now I worked at Union Pacific. I can't hear that song without thinking of locomotives. That's just how I'm wired. Who follows in his train? Who follows in his locomotive? It's just weird to me to hear that word. But train, who follows in his train? To, to us, that's a very rare definition of that word. We also speak of train as in training our children, training up our children in the way they should go. So these words, thankfully, with train, they're such different contexts. We can immediately grasp the differences. Not so easy when you're dealing with world and you're dealing with nuances of difference between the meanings. This is from Practical Principles of Biblical inter Interpretation I found on the Ligonier site. And it has to do with clarity versus obscurity when you're attempting to understand Bible texts. This is the essence of hermeneutics. Right after they'd stated all the rules of hermeneutics, they said this, it is always important to interpret obscure passages by those that are clear. Though we affirm the basic clarity of sacred scripture, and I want to give you a little uh, prelude here, a little, little uh, what do they call that, parenthesis. Um, there is what is referred to as the perspicuity of scripture. It's a beautiful word. I love the word. And so perspicuity of scripture means the clarity of it. That God can save people even though they're dumb as a rock. Because the Bible is very clear in its saving nature. Yet, there are very complex, Peter said that Paul's words can be misinterpreted easily. And so we know that not all verses are as clear as other verses. So with that little uh, envelope there, let's do this. Though we affirm the basic clarity of sacred scripture, we do not at the same time say that all passages are equally clear. 
numerous heresies have developed when people have forced conformity to the obscure passages rather than to the clear passages, distorting the whole message of Scripture. If something is unclear in one part of Scripture, it probably is made more clear elsewhere in Scripture. When we have two passages in Scripture that we can interpret in a variety of ways, we want always to interpret the Bible in such a way as to not violate the basic principle of Scripture's unity and integrity. And what it is is that the Bible is one thing. It is one truth that is woven together. And the theologian's task, everybody's task, is to understand that to detect the conflicts and to resolve them without attempting to destroy the very word you're trying to understand. Now I want to go to the third point, what it is that Christ's death accomplished. And it's from the perspectives of, of Calvinists and Arminians. First, I want to just kind of go over the, the broad outline of salvation, soteriology. First, Jesus atoned for the specific sins of a set of specific individuals. This is the Calvinist perspective. This is, I believe, the biblical perspective. So now some of these people, Adam, Abraham, Daniel, they had all lived and died before Jesus came into the picture. Some, such as Peter and the other ten apostles, Jesus himself is there addressing. So they were living at the time. They were already believing in Christ and serving him. Some such as Paul were then living, but they were not living in faith. That belief was yet to come. Some such as ourselves, obviously, had not been born. We were long in the future, and we are now living. And yet there are others that existed between us and Jesus that came and went. Just like Adam, uh, Abraham, Daniel in the Old Testament, we have lots in the New Testament era that have done the same thing. And yet, there are these others in the future. Perhaps there are trillions of others. Being post-millennial, not fearing that the rapture is going to come and take you away and forget me tomorrow, we know God can do what he wants. He can end time whenever he wants. But we also know from the New Testament that God has laid out a plan and a purpose. And we can look around at the world and see that it doesn't appear that the world is ready to end with the high notes that God had said it would end, with the whole world coming to faith effectively and serving the Lord faithfully. So let's say this. Let's, con let's conjecture a number. Let's say that when time ends, when sin is no more, that there would have been 150 trillion people in existence at that point. That's whatever. That's what I'm, just what I'm saying. It's a number. I obviously don't have a book, chapter, verse to give you for that. Now, let's say, being post-millennials, believing that greater faith is coming, let's say that 100 trillion of those 150 trillion people were of the elect. Two-thirds of the people that ever existed had come to faith. Imagine the sin that Christ's blood had to cover to cover 100 trillion people's sin. Let's say you live 80 years. That's about 700,000 hours. Now you're sleeping for eight of that, except Phil and my wife and a few of others. You're mostly sleeping for eight hours of that. And so let's say you're not sinning while you're sleeping. Let's, let's say that that's not possible. It's probably possible, but let's just say you're not. So we're getting down around 500, 525,000, I'm sorry, 425, 450,000 sins 
that you might have committed if you did only one an hour. Now, you might think that's a big number, but I know I sin often more than once an hour, especially in your thoughts. You find yourself thinking one evil thought after the next, and you're allowing it to go off. You're not just uh, killing it in, in, at its infancy. You're allowing it to go on. You're fantasizing. That's wrong. That's sin. So now, Jesus covered all of those sins at the point in time where he suffered on the cross and died for his elect. Now, for whom did Christ's blood not make an atonement? We've talked about all these believers. Adam was a believer, Abraham, us, a lot of us are believers. And so, for whom, though, did Christ not make an atonement? I would say that he did not make an atonement for Cain. Cain was the root of the evil race. At the time of Noah's flood, all of the people perished in unbelief, except for Noah and his family. I don't believe Christ's blood atoned for any of those that died in Noah's flood. What about the 185,000 Assyrian soldiers that God took out, the angel of the Lord took out in a night when King Hezekiah, Hezekiah prayed for uh, relief because they were besieging Jerusalem? There may have been some believers in there, but by far the majority would not have been. They would have had no interest in the God of Israel whom they were fighting, and they would have had no chance to benefit from Christ's blood. So why would Jesus' blood have been spilled for the 185,000 Assyrian soldiers that the angel of the Lord, Jesus himself, in the flesh, or in, in the spirit, in this uh, theophany, why would he then cover their sins? It makes no sense. It's illogical. But let me give you two examples who I believe of people that, whose sins were not covered from the New Testament era. And so first I want to go to uh, King Herod. This is the King Herod that beheaded John the Baptist after uh, his stepdaughter, I believe, the, the uh, daughter of Herodias, had danced for him, and he was impressed. And she then went to her mother and said, what do I want? She said, you want the head of John the Baptist on a platter brought to you. And that's what she got. So let's go to Acts 12. This is about 10, 12 years after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Acts 12, and I'll read verses 1 and 2. Now about that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. Then he killed James the brother of John, with a sword. And because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. So then we know that Peter escapes this. But look what happens later in the chapter, starting at verse 20. Now Herod had become very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, but they came to him with one accord, and having made Blastus the king's personal aid their friend, they asked for peace because their country was supplied with food by the king's country. So on a set day, Herod, arrayed in a royal apparel, sat on his throne and gave an oration to them. And the people kept shouting, the voice of a god and not of a man. Then immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God. He was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God grew and multiplied. So now, why did King Herod die that day? The angel of the Lord struck him for a reason. What was that reason? He was not glorifying God. He was accepting the praise of men as if it were his due, and he was not giving the glory to God. The angel struck him dead right then. And how did he die? This is interesting. 
He was eaten by worms and died. Right then, boom, sitting on his throne. And God has him eaten by worms on the very throne. Arminians will tell me that Christ's blood was spilled for this man. And yet it was the angel that killed him right on his throne when he's refusing to give glory to God. It makes no sense. And what's interesting is it's Jesus' power that took this man out. And it was before this man that he had been beaten and mocked. When Jesus was taken to Herod, Herod was all excited to see Jesus. He had heard about him. He'd heard about these miracles that he performs. And he'd never seen them yet. He was like a child, excited to see this guy. But then when Christ refused to even acknowledge Herod, and answer his questions and perform for him like a magician. He was angry, and his soldiers beat Christ. The scriptures tells us that Jesus' visage was marred more than any man's. His face, I believe those soldiers began what then continued throughout the crucifixion, beating him because they couldn't stand the sight of him. And yet, what's interesting is Jesus did not take him out for his own vengeance. He took him out because he was not glorifying God. What, but what is the beneficial side effect of King Herod having died? He was on a rampage. He was attacking the church. And look at the last verse, verse 24. But the word of the God grew and multiplied. So see, God had the last word. God took this heretic out. The next story is from Luke 16. The rich man and Lazarus. So the rich man and Lazarus tells the story that Jesus shares with us concerning, and I believe it does probably refer to Lazarus, the brother of Mary and Martha. But this is from uh, Luke 16, starting at verse 22. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. This is a story Jesus is telling. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. Some commentators believe that this was Jesus not telling a parable, not just an entirely made-up story, but that this is a very, fairly realistic story. And what we're picturing here is how the spirits that perished in the Old Testament era were handled. You had those in torment awaiting the final judgment who had died in unbelief. And yet you had men like Lazarus who died in faith who were kept in Abraham's bosom, a form of paradise. So the souls of both the saved and the lost are separated here, and the souls that are lost are already in torment, but Lazarus is staged. Remember what Jesus said to the thief on the cross next to him that came to faith. Today you will be with me in paradise. So there was no break between this. Christ promised this. This is what his death did for those that were being kept waiting for this day. Remember, Paul says that the sins of this past era were uh, winked at or looked over. It doesn't mean they weren't addressed. It doesn't mean they weren't sinning and that they didn't have to be covered by Christ's blood. But what it meant, though, is that the ultimate judgment was awaiting, and then it was poured out on Christ. 
all of the sins of all of the believers from the beginning of the earth until Christ were covered in his death. All of the sins of all the believers that would come from Christ's point to the end of time were covered in his death. I want to give you an example, and I don't want this to in any way um, uh, be a disservice to God. I mean, obviously, the sacrifice of Christ is incredibly precious to us. And I don't want this in any way to uh, undermine that or diminish that. But I want to give you an accounting uh, illustration. The Calvinist view from an accounting perspective is this. Jesus atoned for actual sins of all of the elect at the cross, past, present, and future. The souls that were awaiting him, that were in sight of the lost, like Lazarus, were immediately freed to be with him. Specific payment for the rest of the elect, though, such as ourselves, had to go into escrow to be applied to us. Now, we know it saves us. We know that the penal substitutionary attunement is there. But it's waiting for that moment where we come to faith as well. It's already in our account. Now, the Arminian view is this. Jesus' death resulted in unlimited grace for all at the cross, past, present, future. There was general payment held in escrow for everyone. Now, we could say that initial payment went out for all those that had been saved in the Old Testament era, and that makes sense. But for all those from that point forward, at the moment of their conversion, it's paid out at that point. See, the Arminian view is for all those that came after Christ, not salvation. It doesn't save them. We could say that for all of the people before Christ that it did save them because they were free, just like Lazarus and the, and the man that died with Christ. But now I want to contrast these two perspectives in light of Roman Catholicism and what they teach concerning soteriology. Roman Catholicism and Protestantism teach salvation very differently, and I hope you all understand that. Let's talk about the Roman Catholics. First, they are not saved by Jesus. They are saved by the church. And any good Catholic probably knows that. Yes, Jesus' death provided a tremendous, tremendous supply of grace, saving grace to the church. But it's the church that administers that. It's the church's role on earth to administer that grace. They do it via their sacraments, via their many rituals over the millennia. People can even add grace to that vat by living better than they need to in order to get into heaven. They can earn extra grace and then have that grace applied towards people that they know and love that died that weren't quite as good as them, that are now suffering in purgatory. We Protestants are appalled at this perspective, and rightfully so. We could be as righteously indignant as Christ turning over the money changers' tables in the Gentile court. What they do is wrong, but... I believe there is greater correlation between Arminian Protestant beliefs than Calvinist Protestant beliefs with Roman Catholicism. Listen. Calvinists teach that Christ is the penal substitutionary atonement for his elect. That at his death, we elect were saved. All of the elect. Penal substitutionary atonement. For us that are now living... This has happened at some point. Those that are here, we were regenerated at a point. Some of us know when that might be. Some of us don't know. Thankfully, you don't know. You've always known the Lord. 
You've been regenerated from when you were too young to know. And that's a wonderful belief, a wonderful truth. I was not saved like that. I know the time frame in which I was saved. I know when I was in the world. And I know when I was taken out of that world. Arminians, however, teach that Christ's death did not actually save any of us at the time of, our de- of his death. Christ's death makes grace available from this general account, this large vat of grace. It's not the church that administers it, but it is the people that are essentially self-tapping it. Men's free wills allow them to tap that vat of free grace. And that then indicates that the Holy Spirit is to flow in them and cleanse them of their sin. It is a self-service aisle, like at Walmart. I avail myself of it or I don't. I'm then saved or I'm not. But it is a self-service. You don't need the church to interface for that. I believe that's why we now have so many Arminians falling away from the church. Who needs the church? The church doesn't have a role in my salvation. I saved myself through free access to what is provided for me by Christ's death. The Holy Spirit is merely a mechanism. He's the pipe that does this. He's not the person that does this. In the Calvinist perspective, at the moment of regeneration, that Holy Spirit has to rip out your heart of stone and insert a heart of flesh. That's not how Arminians really see it. The Holy Spirit is an errand boy to do their will at the time that they believe. We were born enslaved to Satan. God gave Satan rule over this fallen world of flesh. The Father chose us, his elect, in him before the foundation of the world to belief. And the Son saved us, his elect, by atoning sacrificially, specifically for us, for our sins on the cross. Next week, we'll see that the Holy Spirit regenerates us, his elect, at a time of his choosing, not our choosing. Let's pray. Father God, these are hard truths for some to accept, and yet your word is so clear, and we disregard it to our peril. So many, so many cults, so many heresies have stemmed from this insistence upon the free will of man, from Pelagianism to semi-Pelagianism to semi-semi-Pelagianism to Jehovah's Witness, Roman Catholicism, Mormonism, Arminianism, all of these, Father, all of these attack your sovereignty. They attack what you have clearly said that you have done and how you rule over the earth and rule over man. Lord, we thank you for the truth of your word. We pray that we would honor it that we would not be blind to it. Awaken us, Father. Open our eyes that we would believe you, know you, love you for who you are, not for who we imagine or want you to be instead. We thank you for this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.